Welcome once again to the Richard Roper Show. I'm Richard Roper. Thanks again to everyone who has been listening to the podcast, uh, sending feedback to me, downloading, subscribing. You can get it where any fine podcast can be found. We're going to get into some interesting stuff today about the difference between reality and documentary series and true crime series that are based on reality, but bend the truth and who's responsible and what do we owe to the victims whose lives are depicted in these true crime series. And we're also going to talk about some biopics historically in Hollywood that have been wildly inaccurate. Before we get to all of that, I want to remind you, the Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com to get started today. What do you do in there? The smells, power tools going all hours of the night. I hear screaming coming from your apartment. Just trying to say I'm sorry. She gonna open your gift? Eat it now. I don't know what's in that. It's just meat. Eat it. That is a clip from Netflix's new series about Jeffrey Dahmer, Monster, the Jeffrey Dahmer story. Uh, it's created by Ryan Murphy and his longtime collaborator Ian Brennan. They work together on Glee and The Politician. And this is a fictionalized version of the infamous story of Jeffrey Dahmer, the cannibalistic uh, serial killer in Milwaukee. It's one of the many, many, many true crime documentaries and or true crime uh, fictionalized uh, drama series, in this case, a fictionalized version that we've seen in recent years. And the question is, what do we owe and what do these true crime series Oh, the victims, if anything, there has been quite a backlash against the Dahmer uh, series by relatives of the victims, of certain victims. Eric Perry, the cousin of Dahmer's first victim, Errol Lindsay, has said this is re-traumatizing the family over and over again. And for what? How many movies, shows, documentaries do we need? Just days after Netflix dropped Ryan Murphy's Monster, based on real-life serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer, one of the victim's families is speaking out. Errol's cousin, Eric Perry, is also addressing the series. Quote, no, they don't notify families when they do this. It's all public record, so they don't have to notify or pay anyone. My family found out when everyone else did. The sister of another victim says she thought that they should donate a portion of the profits to the family members if the show benefits them in some way, then it wouldn't seem so harsh and careless. She's saying, you know, benefit some of the family members. This is an argument that has been going on uh, for years and years and years, uh, whether it's, a, you know, shows about or movies about Charles Manson or Ted Bundy or John Wayne Gacy. When a documentary filmmaker tells the story or when someone tries to tell a fictionalized version of the story, who do they owe and what do they owe? And are we talking about monetary things? Are we talking about showing the families, the finished product or versions of it beforehand? And you know, the short answer to this, guys, is that if you're basing something on someone's book, you're going to buy the rights to the book, whether it's a novel, Gone Baby Gone, or whatever the case may be. 
or it's uh, a nonfiction work and you're going to turn that book and use that book as the basis for your work, you buy the rights and then you do what you want with it pretty much. When we're talking about stories that are in the public domain and when we're talking about biographies of public figures, it's essentially fair game. You don't have to get the rights. Now, you might you know, not be able to tell certain parts of a story. You might not be able to, um, for a documentary, if you can't get an interview you know, with the primary participants who are still with us, then you have to say, hey, listen, we reached out to them. We weren't able to get an interview. But as hard as this might be for the families and the friends and the survivors, these stories can be told. If you look at something like The Staircase, the HBO Max series that just ran earlier this year, and then there was a documentary from 2004, and this is based on the true story of Michael Peterson. He was that American author whose wife was found dead at the bottom of the stairs. He claimed her death resulted from a fall down a flight of stairs, but was eventually tried and found guilty. There were 35 cuts and bruises and seven deep lacerations to the scalp. We need to get you a lawyer. In a case like this, keep your family close. You'll need them on your side. We have no murder weapon, but we've found countless images on his computer. Dad tells stories. They keep that from all of us, not from Mom. She would have told me. The HBO Max miniseries had uh, Colin Firth playing Michael Peterson and Tony Collette playing Kathleen Peterson. They have their own view of what happens. They took some of the dialogue from The Staircase, the HBO Max series, right from the 2004 documentary. But again, it's a fictional series. They they can do that. You know, I mean, listen, if, if a series or a movie absolutely slanders or libels someone and claims that somebody did something they didn't, you obviously have legal recourse, but it's really not easy to prove that there was malicious intent, that there was a deliberate changing of the facts in the interest of, of making a profit. So, it, you know, it's a tough thing, I think, for, for families, uh, for survivors to see these series and kind of realize there's nothing they can do about it. Um, there was a FX series recently, uh, earlier this year, called uh, Under the Banner of Heaven. This case I'm working on is a double murder. So far, what we've found isn't pointing outward. The evidence points to things and to beliefs that I have only ever heard whisperings about. I wonder how something so horrific have come to pass. This was about, about the horrific uh, murder of a young woman and her infant by these uh, kind of Mormon crazy, they're, they're, I shouldn't even say Mormon, they had gone off into you know, a very deep end and they believed that they were you know, saving these people from the devil and it was this horrific double murder and the sister and aunt of the murder victims, uh, Brenda Lafferty and her infant daughter, Erica, have said that they felt like it was living again through the murder all over again by seeing a fictional depiction of the crimes. I, I completely get that. I completely understand that. It has to be a really tough thing. And let's face it, we're all into these true crime series. Again, whether it's the docuseries or films or uh, the documentaries, you know, whether it's making a murderer 
or so many. I mean, there's there's like literally dozens of them coming out every year. It's become a huge thing for Netflix and a lot of the other streaming services. A lot of times they're revisiting crimes from the 70s and 80s and 90s that we might not know a lot about and we're learning about. But even in that case, there's survivors, there's grandchildren, or there's grown children, whatever the case may be. And listen, these series and these movies, they're being done for profit. And sometimes they're really, really well done. Most cases, I, I have found that they're journalistically sound, they're respectful, but it's lurid material. You know, the, you know whether we're you know, investigating or reinvestigating the Green River Killer or Dahmer or, or Bundy or John Wayne Gacy or Manson. I mean, let's face it, there's certain, some of these stories are just going to be told over and over and over again. Once upon a time in Hollywood, the, the Quentin Tarantino film gave us a completely alternate version of reality in which, you know, Brad Pitt's character, who was completely fictional, and Leo's character, you know, they, the wrong house gets invaded and, spoiler alert, you know, they wipe out some of the Manson family members. It's in the public domain. It's part of what happened in the world. So as tough as it may be, for for victims for people who are associated with it there's not a lot you can do so in the case of the of the netflix series monster the jeffrey dahmer story it's good to hear from these victims uh, relatives it's good to hear from these survivors and, and and their voices should be heard and their concerns should be felt i will tell you this it's not going to change anything unfortunately for those who think that they shouldn't bit that hollywood shouldn't be able to make material out of this and you know this has been an argument that I've heard through the years. I started off as a news reporter and I've worked on the hard news side of things. And, you know, people will talk about how, you know, the news business profits off a of tragedy. And listen, by its very nature, news covers very, you know, serious things in the history of journalism, whether it's war coverage, whether it's Hurricane Ian, whether it's leading the 10 o'clock news with, you know, murders in your city. There was a phrase in Chicago, you know, that they used to say, if it, if it bleeds, it leads. And yes, the truth is these are per profit, for profit organizations, CNN, the Fox News, MSNBC, your local affiliates, radio stations. I worked in talk radio for years. You could say we're exploiting it. You know, we, the only way you can tell people what's happening in the world is by covering it and by telling the story. But you will notice that even during coverage of the biggest tragedies, eventually they break for commercials because th these are commercial endeavors. These are for-profit institutions. In the case of something like this, the Jeffrey Dahmer story, I honestly, and there's a documentary, uh, the Dahmer tapes that's coming to Netflix in just the next few days. That's separate from this. I didn't think that there was this much interest, to be honest with you, in the Jeffrey Dahmer story. It's a horrible, horrific, terrible story. But just speaking from a from a dramatic standpoint you know there are other stories that have a, a wider variety of characters and 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 more complex situations or you know long time investigations where people didn't know who did it Dahmer's story is just brutal and horrific uh he killed 17 boys and young men for, for people who don't know most of them were black or gay between 1978 and 1991 he engaged and indulged in cannibalism is you know just horrific stuff. He eventually Jeffrey Dahmer himself was killed in prison. This show is a huge, huge hit, folks. Uh, it was watched the, the way they do it. Netflix sometimes is they count how many hours it was watched instead of eyeballs because or people. And I kind of get that because it's like if you say a certain number of households watched it, you don't know how many people were in the household. So hours just tells you exactly how many hours somebody was watching in the first full week. The show had 196.2 million hours. It's currently the number one TV show on Netflix in more than 60 countries. 
Netflix hasn't really commented on the controversy or the uh, immediate uh, response, but their synopsis says the series exposes these unconscionable crimes centered around the undeserved victims and their communities impacted by the systematic racism and institutional failures of the police that allowed one of America's most notorious serial killers to continue his murderous spree in plain sight over a decade. And I will say to kind of correct myself a little bit when I said there wasn't that many layers to the story. There actually, that, that actually is a, a compelling and uh, appalling element in, in that, uh, you know, the, I think when Dahmer was stopped, as I recall, he was a teenager, like 18, and he's, he actually was taking the body of his first victim to dump it. It was in trash bags in the back of his car, and he was stopped by a police officer who didn't, he just said he was throwing out the garbage. His parents were getting divorced, and he wanted to throw out a bunch of trash. And they never even searched the car, even though things looked pretty suspicious there. And think of all the murders that took place after that, if they had only done a better investigation. And the, the parallels, too, with the John Wayne Gacy story and Jeffrey Dahmer, in both cases, uh, the victims were not your headline friendly, instantly sympathetic, especially in that era type of victims we're talking about. In the case of Gacy, it was a lot of young men who were drifters, who were runaways, who were kind of on the fringe of society. Same thing with the Dahmer case. And you know for sure if that many young white girls had been missing in either one of those cases, there would have been a lot more attention paid by the police and the media to the story. So it's up to you if you want to watch it. Uh, I'm going to review the documentary series next week. I didn't really have a huge uh, interest in watching the dramatization. I've watched a little bit. I, I, listen, Ryan Murphy knows how to put on these types of shows, you know, these types of series and make them, quite frankly, uh, compelling, but also very entertaining. And that's the, that's the name of the game. It's about keeping folks glued to the screen, watching the show, binging it, and coming back for more. I'm going to take a quick break here. I want to talk about some other recent movies based on true stories and even some historically inaccurate biopics. But first, a word about Portillo's. Portillo's are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun and, of course, their legendary chocolate cake. But that's just the beginning, my friends. The menu has mouth-watering varieties of favorites. From a charbroiled burger to an Italian beef to a mm-hmm. cheese fry to a chopped salad and the chocolate cake. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. If you are a fan of this podcast or heard any other episode of this, you know how I feel about the chocolate cake. It's the mm-hmm. greatest chocolate cake in the history of chocolate or cake. Portillo's also has locations throughout the Midwest and in Florida, California, and Arizona. Order curbside pickup or delivery today. Ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S dot com. Welcome back to the Richard Roper Show. Thanks to everybody who's been tuning in. We're talking about movies and streaming series based on real-life people and circumstances. Now, just in the last year, not even this full year, but the last like six months, I was going through my list of reviews, and so many of them are based on true stories. And we've been talking about how much obligation the filmmaker has to be accurate to the truth and tell the story. And, you know, I always tell people about this, whether it's a most serious biopic like Lincoln or something that's just loosely inspired by true events like uh, Amsterdam, 
the latest movie from David O. Russell, which is absolute trash, unbelievable cast, great premise, and loosely inspired by true events, but is absolutely terrible. But whatever, whatever the circumstances or the quality of the film might be, these are films that are in the category at the Academy Awards of, of motion picture drama or motion picture comedy. They're not in the documentary category. Documentaries do have a higher standard to you know adhere to the truth, although a lot of documentaries are going to slant things or tell things from a certain point of view. We know that for sure. Michael Moore can tell you that. But the reality is, I'm saying, I'll say to people, like, you know, you'll, they'll see a movie about someone and go, I don't think that really happened that way. And I go, it's, they got two hours to tell the story that might have spanned 60 years. They're going to be shortcuts. Sometimes they're going to eliminate certain key characters from that person's life because they can't tell about everybody. Or they'll put together a composite character representing four or five characters from that person's life. That's simply the nature of, of these stories and these films that are, you know, you'll see this interesting too. It'll be, sometimes it says based on a true story. Sometimes it says inspired by real life events or some of the events you're about to see occurred. Now, just in recent, in weeks and months, we talked on a recent podcast about Blonde, which is the highly stylized and greatly fictionalized biopic about Marilyn Monroe. On the hand. How'd you get your start? What start? In movies. By Continental. I guess I was discovered. I know you're supposed to get used to it, but I just can't. I played Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe. I can't face doing another scene with Marilyn Monroe. Uh, this is based on a novel not a nonfiction biography by Joyce Carol Oates. It's her novelization, not novelization, it's, it goes on forever, uh, but it's a, a very long novel, very rich in detail, and yes, she has real-life characters that, as the basis, obviously Marilyn Monroe, but also Joe DiMaggio and Arthur Miller, uh, but they're, they're fictionalized versions of that, and then the movie goes way off on a tangent. It, it, it has relationships that she never had. They got this whole threesome thing uh, with the sons of Edward G. Robinson and Charlie Chaplin that is a purely fictional construct. And I, listen, I think the movie's trash. I think it's, it, I think it's actually, it does exploit Marilyn Monroe. I think it doesn't add anything new. I think it's a beautifully filmed, highly stylized exercise in reminding us that she was the victim of so many abusers and had a terrible life. But it's a fictionalized story. Uh, there was a recent movie that, that came out called The Greatest Beer Run Ever. I don't know if you guys have heard about this one. I'm going to Vietnam, and I'm bringing a beer! Yeah! Hey, Chief, no chance you have a ship heading to Vietnam. 1,700 hours. Tonight? It's not going to be easy. But I'm going to show them that this country is still behind them. You're going to get yourself killed over there. It's like you said, everyone's doing something. I'm doing nothing. One morning, Smuggling beer into a war zone. It's not the smartest thing I've ever heard of. It's certainly not the worst either. It's okay. I wanted it to be better. It's a period piece film. It's set in the late 60s in a Manhattan working class neighborhood in New York. And then it transfers to Vietnam. Jack, Zach Efron. Zach Efron plays a real life guy. Uh, he's a merchant marine. And some of the buddies of his from the neighborhood are serving in Vietnam. And he comes up with the harebrained scheme that he's going to take a satchel of Paps Blue Ribbon to Vietnam. And find three or four of his buddies who are stationed in various areas. This is right around during the Tet Offensive. You know, it's hell over there 
Has this actually really happened? This real-life guy took a satchel of beers and actually found a couple of his buddies and just wanted to say, hey, here's a Pabst Blue Ribbon. We're thinking about you. You know, hang in there. Now, the movie isn't quite sure whether to play it too much for comedy or too much for drama. It feels like um, a greatest hits collection of better movies like Good Morning Vietnam, which, by the way, was based on a true story and took a lot of great liberties with the truth. Casualties of War It has moments that it reminded me of Apocalypse Now. But it kind of tells the real story. Uh, the real life guy was over there for like two months on this crazy ass beer run. Did it occur to you that this might be pretty hard to find four guys? I thought it would be impossible, but I had to try. And if I failed, I failed. Who would take the opportunity to come over here 10,000 miles just to bring us a beer? Yet here they are today, Chicky and his buddies, at the world premiere of the greatest beer run ever. 500,000 soldiers and Marines in country at that time, and he finds four of us. Yeah. Amazing. What are the odds? Million to one. Million to one. The movie distills it to four days because that's going to make for a better movie. They, these are the types of uh, changes that are made. Uh, we had uh, the movie 13 Lives recently from Ron Howard, which tells the story, the amazing story of the Thai cave rescue. There have been a couple of fictional films and a couple of documentaries. That's the story from just a few years ago, you might recall. Uh, the youth soccer team, they all got trapped in this cave. And then there were this worldwide effort involving everybody from Navy SEALs to independent contractors to volunteers, all trying to figure out how to rescue these boys. It's a fictional film, but the Ron and Howard actually sticks very closely uh, to the events that happened. Uh, the Blackbird, which is a great mini series, limited series, the true story of the serial killer Larry Hall. We would like you to transfer to another prison and befriend someone. <laughs> To elicit a confession. We suspect that this man killed 14 women, but we only have one of the bodies. Maximum security specializing in the criminally insane. You want me to check into hell and befriend the demon? Not for all the money in the world. How about freedom? And uh, Taron Edgerton plays Jimmy Keene, who's a guy who gets convicted of some like kind of slick financial crimes and is told if he'll go undercover to maximum security prison and get a confession from this Larry Hall, he'll get his sentence commuted. Based on a true story, they take great liberties with the timeline and the series of events there. Even The Woman King, uh, the big epic warrior movie, there's been some criticism that it doesn't exactly represent what happened well, this one they've said from the start is based on a real life tribe and a real life country and real life conflicts in the early 19th century, but all fictional characters. There was a movie earlier this year called 18 and a half. 18 and a half refers to the infamous 18 and a half missing minutes on the Watergate uh, tapes. And in this movie, a stenographer at the White House actually recovers the missing 18 and a half minutes and meets with the journalist to hand over the tapes. And then all kinds of intrigue happens. None of that. None of that happened in real life. It's it's taking a, a real life event and and turning into pure fiction. Now I wanted to talk quickly too about some biopics and that are considered wildly inaccurate. And I don't think it really in a lot of cases we know that going in, so we can still enjoy them. You might remember, of course, the Academy Award winning Mel Gibson's film Braveheart. Let's listen to a clip from Braveheart. Would you be willing? to trade all the days from this day to that for one chance, just one chance, to come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives 
but they'll never take our freedom! A lot of great speechifying in Braveheart. And listen, it's a rousing period piece, epic, you know, very violent and all these great good against evil uh, plots. Uh, the setup in the movie uh, shows uh, Wallace as this kind of salt of the earth guy, and he wants uh, revenge against the English after they abuse and assault and kill his wife. So he leads his countrymen in an uprising against the forces of King Edward I of England and all of this, you know, crazy political intrigue and stuff happened and then a lot of violence. Uh, the the re- reality is he was actually born into a life of privilege um, and there was nothing about him uh, fighting against the English to avenge a slain bride. He just wanted to get the English out of Scottish affairs. But you got to throw in all this drama to make it more compelling and also to kind of, you know, give people more of an emotional involvement. The movie from a couple of years ago that was a huge hit, kind of a surprise hit, was The Greatest Showman. Remember, this was the story about the musical about P.T. Barnum. The Life and Times of P.T. Barnum, and Hugh Jackman's great. I mean, look, he's a Broadway star. He's a guy that can do everything. Uh, But this has almost nothing to do with reality. They made The Greatest Showman all about P.T. Barnum. Remember, he had all this, uh, he had this great literal circus, this collection of misfits, and they used to call them freaks back in the day, and people who didn't belong, and they all kind of unite under the tent of P.T. Barnum's all-inclusive circus. In reality, this guy was, you know, he exploited people. Uh, Some people say he was racist, and he certainly was nothing like the character Hugh Jackman uh, portrays him to be. But I think when you go into something like The Greatest Showman and you know that Hugh Jackman's going to be dancing around in a top hat, it's not going to be historically accurate. Same thing with Amadeus, where they play up the, the, the rivalry between Salieri and Mozart in a way that really has nothing to do with reality, uh, but it makes for such a compelling work of fiction. I mean, and the the screenwriter was asked years and years on end, like, why did you make it so fanciful? And why he said, listen, we was never telling people it was a documentary biography. Bonnie and Clyde, classic film from the 60s. Uh, uh, you know, you got great star performances from Faye Dunaway and Warren Beatty. Let's take a listen to Bonnie and Clyde. Much obliged. My name's Otis Harris. This is Davis. We work this place. How are you? This year's Miss Bonnie Parker. Glad to meet I'm you. I'm Clyde Barron. Clyde. We rob banks. Now listen, this is this is a film that was part of the new wave of, of films in the 60s, like Easy Rider, and then into the early 70s, Scarecrow, films that had you know kind of this gritty feel, beautifully filmed, but like less of the gloss and big picture take of Hollywood. And it really glamorized Bonnie and Clyde, who should not have been glamorized in any way, shape, or form. In the movie, they're always, uh, you know, going after uh, the big banks and their rebels. In reality, they went after a lot of small banks and stores and gas stations. And also, I don't completely shy away from this, but they killed a lot of people, Bonnie and Clyde. Uh, mostly innocent, all, I should say, all innocent victims. Uh, and it again, that it's not completely glossed over, but... 
you know, the last final scene of Bonnie and Clyde where we see Bonnie and Clyde looking at each other before they're gunned down is like turning them into the leads in the Titanic. Uh, I'll tell you one that really kind of got to me in recent years, and we're talking about inaccuracies and biopics, and again, these are fictional works, and there's a lot of articles now whenever something comes out based on a true story, what they got right, what they got wrong. I think a lot of times they didn't really get it wrong. They deliberately made their own choices and engaged in poetic license in the name of making a better movie or, or, or series. But Bohemian Rhapsody, you know, Rami Malek won the Academy Award. And the film was a huge hit. I thought it was a trashy, made-for-TV-looking, warmed-over, superficial biopic. I was shocked that it did so well. And then it got fairly decent reviews. First of all, one of the things they do is they pay so much attention to this one romance wedding uh, he had, Freddie Mercury we're talking about, uh, and almost concentrate more on that than his bisexuality which he declared himself to be early on but they also uh, they, they they play around with the timeline and again i think in some movies it's more important than in others and here in the movie uh they have the band breaking up and then reuniting at the live aid concert that didn't happen freddie mercury actually hadn't received his uh diagnosis of aids until after live aid and he still uh lived for i think six or seven years after that and even in the depiction of the, the the legendary Live Aid concert in London, where they, you know, and you can see the footage on YouTube. It's amazing. Freddie Mercury at the top of his game. Queen was fantastic. But in the movie, this drove me nuts because they, listen, Live Aid had, you know, this incredible roster of talent. Every big band, you know, b major act of the time, whether it's, you know, Phil Collins and Madonna, they had uh, Elton John, they had acts playing uh, in Philadelphia as well as in London. And according to the movie, nobody was calling in to make any donations until Queen took the stage and then all of a sudden the phones are ringing off the hook. And that's just like insulting to the reality and to the artistry of all the other great acts there. They were making millions of dollars even before Queen took the stage. It's just so silly. A film that gets a lot of praise and it was actually one of my favorite films of the 2010s is a film from 2010 called Social Network, of course. Loved that movie. People want to go on the internet and check out their friends, so why not build a website that offers that friends, pictures, profiles. I'm talking about taking the entire social experience of college and putting it online. The site got 2,200 hits within two hours. Thousand. 22,000. This idea is potentially worth millions of dollars. Millions? You stole our website. They're saying we stole the Facebook. I know what it says. So did we? A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. You're going to get left behind. It's moving faster when than any of us ever imagined get left it would behind. Let's sue him in federal court. I can't wait to stand over your shoulder and watch you write as a chef. You guys were the inventors of Facebook. You invented Facebook. Again, though, even though, you know, I think it captures the spirit and the weirdness and the genius and the early years of Facebook very, very well. But they do take, you know, Jesse Eisenberg, I think is great, by the way, as Mark Zuckerberg. They took all kinds of liberties with this. Yes, he did uh, create Facebook originally as this sort of, face, you know, that thing, uh, uh, face smash, where they were um, 
enabling students to evaluate the attractiveness of, of one another. But in the movie, it's all fueled by him being uh, rejected by his ex-girlfriend, Erica Albright. And the famous final scene in The Social Network is uh, Zuckerberg refreshing his own Facebook page, seeing that if Erica had accepted his friend request, and she hadn't. And th the truth is, she doesn't exist. She didn't exist. And he actually was with his girlfriend at the time. So whatever motivated him, it wasn't rejection. But it just makes for kind of a great insight into his obsessive character, his sometimes uh, mercurial, to put it lightly, nature. So in that case, I didn't have a big problem with that. You know, you're going to have that. Uh, we're going to have to talk again about this. I got so many other films I wanted to get to, but uh, I want to keep us to our usual half hour or so time with the Richard Roper podcast. So we'll revisit this the next time, and it'll be soon. There's a biopic that people are crying inaccuracies, inaccuracies, injustices. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening. I am Richard Roper. We'll speak soon.